Today's scripture comes from Luke 15:11 to 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens that in the, of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful today for our mothers and the mothers among us. Lord, we pray that on this Mother's Day you would bless them that they would know the value and the joy of the call that you have graciously given them and that they would be honored among us. Father, we also want to recognize that as a Christian family, there are other women who have helped to raise us and help to raise our children. And so would they be honored today too? And Lord, we want to recognize that today is a tough day for some people For those who have lost their mothers and those who can't be mothers for whatever reason, Lord, we pray that, God, you would be their comfort. And Father, we now, as we turn to your word, Lord, would you instruct us and teach us, would you transform us, that we would bear your likeness and that we would shine bright in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, good morning. My name is John, part of the team here, and let me add my welcome to Kendra's on this very hot uh, morning. I, I think I got sunstroke yesterday, so if I collapse, then um, 
someone else will have to jump in. Um, today we are starting a new short series on the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these short, punchy stories that Jesus told. And today, as you've just heard, we are looking at what is sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, someone in the first gathering um, told me that how ironic on Mother's Day we're doing a parable about a father, but um, I don't come up with the schedule, so blame someone else. Um, this parable is a fan favorite. Um, I heard just this week that one of my best friends, Ezra Matua, who is uh, three years old, this is his favorite parable. So I just want to do this justice for Ezra. Uh, as one of the worship leaders said to me uh, during the sound check, this is a classic. I was like, okay, no pressure. Uh, this is the parable that when you Google parable, this comes up, this and the Good Samaritan. And so uh, needless to say that most of us in this room are familiar with that story. Most of us are familiar with that story. Even if you're new to this whole church thing, you've just sort of wandered here because you wanted to get out of the sun, maybe. Um, you've probably heard that story before, or at least heard of the parable of the prodigal son. But today, I want to examine it closely. I want to interrogate the story in order to do justice to this classic, in order to, to do justice to Ezra Matua's favorite parable. Um, and I'm going to guess that for many of us, the details of the story are going to surprise us. We're familiar with the story broadly, but the details are going to surprise us. And that even for those of us that have heard this story thousands of times, ever since we were kids, there are always elements of challenge that never leave us. And so whether it surprises you this morning or challenges you, it's worth your time. And so that's the intro. We're getting into it. Um, I've got a lot of ground to cover. Now, rather than two points today, I've got two parts. It's two points, but they're two parts. Part one, an unrighteous son. Part one, an unrighteous son. Part two, and his self-righteous brother. Part one, an unrighteous son. Part two, and his self-righteous brother. Okay, part one, an unrighteous son. Now, before we uh, get into the parable of the prodigal son, it's important, as with all Bible reading, to consider the context. Why is it that Jesus is telling this parable? And we can see the context at the start of Luke 15 that says this in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus has been receiving sinners. He's been welcoming sinners and dining with them. He's spending time with them. And the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are not happy about it. And in response, almost to justify Jesus' actions to the religious leaders, Jesus tells them not one, but three parables. Not one, but three parables. You might have heard of them before as well. You see, before the parable of the prodigal son is the parable of the lost coin, and before that is the parable of the lost sheep. Now, without reciting the other two parables in full, this is what we need to see, and this is what Jesus is trying to show them in the parables. 
Each of them has the same pattern as the one before. All three of them have this same four-part movement in it. Something is lost, like a sheep or a coin. Someone goes and looks for it. That thing is found, and then there is much rejoicing. Something is lost, someone looks for it. That thing is found, and then there is much rejoicing. This is the pattern of these three parables that Jesus tells. Losing, seeking, finding, rejoicing. Losing, seeking, finding, rejoicing. But in this third and final parable, Jesus is going to tell a much more complex and controversial story. See, the first two were quite simple stories, but this one is much more complex and much more controversial. In this final parable, Jesus is literally going to raise the stakes. He's going to raise the stakes. You'll notice if you read the other parables, the sheep is one sheep lost among 100. The coin is one coin lost among 10. And now we read in this parable that there was a man who had just two sons two sons. And it says, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. You see, in this opening part of the parable, the opening part of this story, this is where we get the common title, the prodigal son. The word prodigal comes from the Latin. Now, I don't speak Latin. I looked this up. It comes from the Latin prodigus, meaning lavish. It means extravagant. Prodigal means excessive or reckless living. And this is what we see displayed in the younger son. And in this first part of the story, what Jesus is illustrating for us, remember there's, there's, there's metaphors at play in parables. What Jesus is illustrating for us is the spiral of sinful living. The spiral of sinful living. The son goes out, it says, on his own way into what is called the far country. A far country. He spends everything his father has given him. And to compound his own actions, the climate and the culture and the people of this far country are hostile. They're harsh. They're inhospitable. The young son ends up in need and it says no one gave him anything. What Jesus wants us to see here is a spiral, a descent, a movement further down and further away from the provision and the comfort of the Father's house into an empty and inhospitable place, this far country. That's what we're seeing, a spiral down. What's interesting is... This parable is different from the other two in many ways, but one of the ways it's different is that there is an added element of why the object or person is lost. You see, for the lost sheep and the coin, there's no reason to suggest that the sheep was intentionally trying to get away, and there's no reason to think that a coin could. But the added element in this story is that of volition. It's that of the will. The lostness of the son isn't by accident. The lostness of the son is his own doing. 
In fact, the lostness of the son begins with a rejection of the father. Look at verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, we might think as we read this with our modern minds that this is merely the impatience of an entrepreneurial son, right? He just wants to get his life going, maybe start a business or whatever, so he wants to avoid inheritance tax or something like that. But what would have been recognized by everyone hearing this parable in its original cultural setting is that the son, in demanding the inheritance from the father, is essentially saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. I don't want you. I want your gifts and inheritance, but I don't want you. It would be better for me if you were dead. This would have been understood by everyone listening as the ultimate disrespect a son could show to his father. The son's lostness begins with a willful rejection of the father. And what we're supposed to see here is not simply a moral lesson of this is what happens when you dishonor your parents, although don't dishonor your parents. But what we're being shown here is a metaphor for the posture of humanity before God. The posture of humanity before God. What the Son is doing to the Father here, Paul says, humanity has done to God. In Romans 1, he says this, For although they, that is humanity, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They knew him, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Sin, Christ city, at its foundation is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of the Father. The lostness of the world begins with a willful rejection of the heavenly Father. It was the original sin of Adam in the garden and has been the habit of humanity ever since. That's what the Bible shows us. We saw in Adam the result was that he and Eve were cast out of the garden into east of Eden, right? Outside of the comfort of the provision of God. And in the language of this parable, this is a movement that we see from the Father's house to the far country. From the Father's house to the far country into a God-forsaken world by those who have willfully forsaken God. You see, when we reject God, both personally and, and, and if we did as a, as a church, as a, as a community, or as we do as a society, this is the world that we get. This is the world that Jesus is describing. We get laws that oppress us rather than protect us. We get ideologies that enslave us rather than liberate us. We get habits that bring us bondage and we get lifestyles that lead not to life but to death. This is the far country that Jesus is describing and this is an aside but isn't it interesting that Jesus in responding to the religious leaders who are criticizing him eating with sinners, him, him receiving and welcoming sinners, he begins with as clear a description as you will see anywhere of the danger and destruction of sin. That's funny, isn't it? 
Jesus is beginning to justify why he is eating with sinners, but he never once justifies sinning. Never once. You see that often used. Well, Jesus ate with sinners as a justification for sinful behavior and practices and lifestyles. Jesus never once justifies sin. In fact, in this parable, he begins with an open condemnation of it. Christ City, we are called to love sinners, to welcome sinners, to receive sinners as Jesus did, but we are also called to hate sin as Jesus does. In fact, we love sinners by hating sin because we know We can see, we have it illustrated for us in this parable, what sin does to those we love. The world that it creates, the habits that it produces. Jesus begins this parable with a comprehensive, unambiguous description of the danger and destruction of sin. The unrighteous son is lost. That's unquestionable. The question is, could he ever be found? He's lost, but can he be found? Read with me verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. This verse, verse 17, marks the turning point in the story. It says he he came to himself. The idea is that he came to his senses, almost like he woke up. This is the beginning of what we might call a path of repentance. And there's a twofold movement that we can see, right? Twofold motivation. The first is a recognition of the emptiness of the far country. And the second is a recollection of the abundance of the father's house, right? This is, this is often how we and our loved ones and those around us are drawn back to God, isn't it? There's this push and this pull. There's this push when we see and the world sees the emptiness of its ideologies and its ideas. We see where it leads and people are lost and they're just saying, I need something else. Maybe that's why you're here today. There's that push when you realize the world is empty, but there's also this pull when we get a glimpse, or maybe if you grew up in church or you were aware of God, we get a glimpse or a a recollection of the goodness of the Father. We're reminded of how good He is. This is the beginning of the son's journey of repentance. But the question is, when he goes back, will he be received? And that's the question for us too. When we repent, how will we be received by God? In fact, will we be received by God? This is the son's concern. And so what he does is what we do is we start to make plans. Okay, in verse 18, he says this, I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And so the son returned timidly and tentatively with a script in his hands that he has recited of what he is going to say to the father when he returns. And he's saying, I'm coming back, but not as a son, but as a servant. 
I'm coming back not as a son, but as a servant. And maybe that's how you have come into church today. Maybe you've walked in timidly or tentatively. Maybe you've lived your life your own way, away from God. You've rejected the Father, as it were. And now you approach him tentatively and you're asking yourself, will God receive me? Will he receive me? How will he receive me given all that I have done to dishonor him, to bring shame to his name? If that's you, I want you to just pay attention to the screen as we read the Father's response. I want you to hear how Jesus describes the Father's response. In verse 20, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now keep this on the screen for a second. Christity, this is the response of God to repentant sinners. This is the response of God to repentant sinners. As we timidly walk back to God, broken and ashamed, He runs to us when we are far off and He gathers us up in His arms. And as we begin to recite our plan to come back to God, to come back as servants and as not, not as sons, and to try and earn our way back into his love. We, we, we start to say, as the son did, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. God interrupts us as the father interrupts the son. Do you notice? The son didn't even get out the final line before we can say the words, treat me as one of your hired servants. The father treats us as his son showers us with gifts and provision. Christ City, this is the response of God to repentant sinners. This is the response received with open arms. You see it not only received, but restored. He didn't just welcome him in. He, he restored everything the son had squandered in the far country. He now restores and gives back to the son. His nakedness is clothed. His, his hungry stomach is filled. His shame is turned to honor. Christ City, the Christian story, does not minimize the lostness of the lost. But the good news of the gospel is that no one is too lost to be found. The gospel is that though our shame and our guilt is deeper than the sea, God's grace is deeper still. I don't know how you came here today. I know you were hot. But were you confident? Or did you come in timidly and tentatively, Conscious of the life that you've lived this week that has dishonored God, if that's you, the call today is just to repent. 
to turn from that way and to turn to God. To turn to God, come to your senses as the prodigal does. Come back to the Father, and as John's first letter says, if we confess our sins, He, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will receive you. He will restore you. And there will be much celebration. And so we end our parable as with the sheep and the coin with celebration. That which was lost is now found. That which was dead is now alive. That is the parable of the prodigal son. But we've got more time, so I'm going to just keep going. No. Let me suggest if that is all you know of this parable... Even though it is glorious and we need to hold to it and keep reciting it and keep remembering it for ourselves, if that is all you know of the parable, you may have just missed the entire point of the parable. You see, the rhetorical power of this story is that while it is like the previous parables that Jesus has told, it is also unlike them in a very significant way. You see, there is losing and seeking and finding and rejoicing, but now among the rejoicing, there is grumbling. Part one, an unrighteous son. Part two, and his self-righteous brother. Verse 25, we read this. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, that is the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. So the older brother, he hears that the younger brother is home, and it says he is angry and refuses to join the party, refuses to join the celebrations. And the question is, why? Why would the older brother be angry that the younger brother has been restored, that the younger brother has returned? Well, What's sometimes lost on us, again, as modern readers, as we impose our culture onto this text, is that for the audience of the time, in hearing this parable, it is the father's response and not the brother's response that is most scandalous. It is the father's response and not the older brother's response that is most Scandalous. You see, according to the customs of the day, in response to the shameful and dishonorable behavior of the younger brother, it would have been appropriate, in fact expected, that the father would have had a formal ceremony to disown his son. Such is a disgrace that has come upon him that it would have been expected that he would have disowned the younger brother. It makes sense, doesn't it, of why the younger brother is so timid in coming back. And why he doesn't expect to come back as a son, but as a servant. So in this story, the audience would have been surprised and probably angered 
alongside the older brother at the apparent injustice of it all. The injustice of it all. Surely this isn't fair, is the reply. Surely this isn't fair. The younger brother deserves punishment, not a party. Right? Parents? The younger brother deserves punishment and not a party. This is where I think the parable gets really interesting. You know, in the Christian life, there are two temptations that we can fall into that are just as pernicious as the other. Two ways that we can misunderstand the gospel. Two ways that we can misunderstand the Christian faith. And they are represented by the two sons in the story of the prodigal. The first temptation is, is what we've just heard about. This is the path of the prodigal, the, the unrighteous son. This is where we reject God. We go our own way and we live for ourselves apart from God. But the second temptation is not of unrighteousness, but of self-righteousness. It's not of unrighteousness, but of self-righteousness. This is the, the story of the older brother. This is the path that he has taken and that of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders that Jesus was speaking to. And I want to suggest to us, church, that it is this second temptation this self-righteousness that tempts us the most. It is this self-righteousness that tempts us the most. And it tempts us because of its apparent rightness, but its subtle wrongness. <laughs> it looks so good, just like the Pharisees and the scribes, but inside it is dead. Self-righteousness has this has different symptoms to unrighteousness in our lives, but it is the same disease of sin. And it is just as deadly for us. And you know what? If we allow it to fester among us as a community, it will rot us from the inside out. So, what does self-righteousness look like among us? What I want to do now is I just want to look at the older brother and see if we might even diagnose some symptoms, some symptoms of self-righteousness that we can see in him and that might challenge self-righteousness in us as a community, okay? And I want us to be honest about this. I want us to consider for ourselves how we might fall into this subtle temptation that masquerades as Christianity but has nothing to do with it. Okay, three symptoms. Number one, the self-righteous demand what they think they deserve. The self-righteous demand what they think they deserve. We might say that they are entitled. They are entitled. Look at it again, verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You know, what's interesting about this part of the story is that the older brother and the younger brother are very alike. And they're alike in the fact that they both see their relationship with their father as much more transactional, much more like a servant to a master than a son to a father. Just like the younger brother is coming back and saying, I want to be a servant in your house and not a son. He's trying to earn his way back into his father's love. The older brother serves his father 
and expects in return, he thinks that he has earned his father's love. I have served you. I have never disobeyed you. Therefore, I want what's coming to me. I deserve this. We're tempted to do this, aren't we? We we do spiritual things in order that God would. I've been serving on the cafe team now, God. When is this going to happen? We start praying silly prayers. God, I have done this. You need to do this. Or God... I will do this if you do this. God, you know what? I'm going to give community group a go this year, but I expect to find a husband there. (laughs) Silly prayers. Silly prayers. God, I'm going to give this much this year. It's more than I've previously given. I I know you know that. But I expect my business to flourish. I have done this, therefore I deserve this. The self-righteous demand what they think they deserve. Secondly, the self-righteous measure what they deserve against other people. They measure themselves against others. They compare themselves. Look at it again. He says to his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He did this, I did this. This seems unfair. The measure of our goodness is calculated against the measure of other people's goodness. This is where we can start to feel good about who we are when we just measure ourselves against the person down the aisle from us. Later on in Luke 18, Jesus tells a, another parable, the Pharisee and a tax collector, and the Pharisee prays this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I wonder in the story if the tax collector is next to him praying, being like, what the? <laughs> you know, is this like internal prayer? Is this like he's burning out? At least I'm not like this guy. <laughs> what? I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I do this and I do that. Thank God I'm not like this loser. You know, this is the way that we justify often sin in our lives because it's not as bad as what they do. God, you're surely not upset with this, are you? Because look at those guys. The self-righteous measure themselves against others. As a result of the first two, demanding what we deserve and measuring against others, the self-righteous get angry or bitter rather than celebrate God's grace in other people's lives. They get angry or bitter rather than celebrate God's grace towards other people. This is why the older brother is angry. He's angry at the grace of the father to his younger brother because he himself is self-righteous. He believes he, he deserves what the younger brother has received. When God gives good things to others, 
This is when our response is not to celebrate with them, but to question God's judgment. We get angry or bitter. We pray silly prayers. God, really? You're, you're going to bless them? You're going to give them? This is when we, we live in the Father's house, but we totally lose the Father's heart. Now, hear me on this last one. It's not that we can't grieve not having something that is good and right to hope for or even pray for. It's not that we can't grieve not having something. In fact, we're encouraged to pray to God who is a Father who, who gives us blessings. But if you can't celebrate God's grace in others and all it produces in you is bitterness and anger, then something isn't right. This is a symptom of self-righteousness in you. And it is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is this so dangerous for us? Why is it so dangerous for us as a community? Why is self-righteousness just as dangerous as unrighteousness? Why does Jesus, think about this, why does Jesus go after the older brother and not the younger brother? I think there's two reasons. One, in our self-justification projects, in our self-righteousness, what happens is, is we become completely blind that we ourselves are just as in need of grace as anyone else. We think we're okay because we've measured ourselves against someone who is doing worse and we become completely blind that we ourselves need to be, are desperately in need to be recipients of God's grace and His mercy. But more than that, self-righteousness also blinds us to what we have already received, the grace that we have already received from God. Let me explain one of the things that scholars note about the whole older brother scene is that the older brother, again, culturally, would have been expected to go and join the family in the celebration of the son. In fact, as the older brother, there would have been formal expectation of him joining the party. And his refusal to go and celebrate would have dishonored and disrespected the father. His refusal would have dishonored the father and the fact that the father had to leave the party to go and find his eldest son would have been shameful for him. It would have been shameful for him. We miss that if we don't understand what is happening culturally here. You see, the irony of the story of the older brother is that while he is explaining just how obedient he has been and how disobedient his brother has been, he himself is being disobedient. He is blind to the fact that he is a recipient of God's grace. The father is being merciful to the brother in this scene. Look at the father's response. Son... You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you see? The older brother was blind not only to the fact that he needs grace in this moment, that he is dishonoring his father, and his father is being merciful towards him, 
He's become blind to the fact that he has everything in his father's house already. He's blind to the grace that he has already received. This, Christ City, is the danger of self-righteousness. It blinds us to our true spiritual state, lost in our sin, but also in Christ. The riches of God are available to us. This is why it's so dangerous. You know, if, if, if any of these symptoms have rang a little bell, maybe ring true for you in any way, if you are tempted towards this type of behavior anyway, you know what, this, this parable has good news for you too. You see, the good news of the parable of the prodigal son is not only that there is hope for the unrighteous, but there is hope for the self-righteous too. That just as the father came out to meet the younger son, the older son is received by the father. The father comes out to the older brother to meet him and calls him home. He calls him home. The difference is, in the story of the older brother, we are left in suspense. What will he do? Will he come and join the celebration? Will he come back to the father's house? Will he too come to his senses and receive the grace of the father? Christ City, the call for both younger and older brothers among us is to repent is to turn from our foolish ways and to come back to the Father's house. Let me end with this. What I've tried to do today is I've tried to present the parable of the prodigal son as not just one lost son, but two lost sons. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. This is a story not of one son who is lost, but of two sons who are lost. But what I want to end by is suggesting that there is another son in our text that if we look closely enough, we will see. You see, what the Pharisees and the scribes would not have understood is that Jesus, the very person telling them this parable, the very person challenging them, the very person revealing God to them was God among them in the person of his son. Jesus, the Son of God. You see, Jesus is the Son who was fulfilling what both the sons could not and did not do. Jesus is the Son who leaves the home of the Father to go into the far country, but not in rebellion against his Father, but according to his Father's will, he goes to the far country in order to restore and redeem lost sons. This is the famous words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ City, this is why Jesus welcomes sinners. This is why he receives sinners, not to justify sin, but to restore sinners. He had come, as he will say later in Luke, to seek and save the lost. And he would do so at the cross, the farthest and the darkest and the outer regions of the far country to be forsaken in order that we would be received and restored 
He would take upon himself the lostness of the lost in order that we who are lost might be found. He would die the death that we deserved in order that we would have new life. Jesus would make a way for us to come back to the Father. He will receive you and he will restore you. Would you stand as we respond? <laughs>